Our gracious God, we thank you for this day, the Lord's Day. Father, we're thankful for all that you've designed it to be for us. Father, and all the blessings that come to us through it. Lord, we pray that um, throughout this day you would help each of each one of us, all of your people, to be attentive to your word. Lord, that you would help us to grow in our appreciation for the grace that you've given us in Christ. Lord, that you would work in us by your spirit and transform us more into his image. Lord, we thank you for your word and how you have revealed yourself to us through it and how you teach and instruct us in the way that we should live through it. And Father, we thank you for this time now even to consider what your word says in regard to prayer and how you would have us approach you and draw near to you through prayer as we seek to worship you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just guide us at this time and uh, help us, Father, to better understand your mind and your will in this matter. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, well, this is our uh, second class on praying in corporate worship. Last week, uh, we discussed corporate prayer primarily in the Old Testament, and we looked at the covenantal and at the communal aspects of prayer. We looked at the institution of the mediatorial and intercessory prayer. <clears throat> and we looked at some elements of prayer. Um, we saw praise, we saw confession and thanksgiving. We also spent some time looking at how uh, the temple, which was the center of religious life of Israel, was dedicated and designed to be a house of prayer. And then we touched briefly on some developments of prayer in the synagogue and how those influenced New Testament prayer as Jesus and his disciples um, would have been brought up hearing prayers in that context. So today we're, we'll talk a little bit more about prayer in the New Testament and then look at uh, historical approaches to corporate prayer in the church and talk about specific types of prayers that ought to be taking place regularly in the church. <clears throat> um, and so I do want to reiterate that uh, we want to see that our worship is biblical and that it's informed by and conformed to our theological convictions. Reformed theology and Reformed worship go together. <clears throat> and if our practice in worship is somehow contrary to our theology, in certain ways that can have a negative effect, uh, it could have an effect of undermining our theology. Theology shapes the church's liturgy, but over time, the worship of the church can inevitably influence its theology. So we want to be deliberate about shaping our worship because it will shape us. And this is certainly true of prayer. Terry Johnson argues that prayer is the ultimate in applied theology. When we pray, we are praying the great truths that we've come to understand from Scripture. We also mentioned last week that um, under the new covenant, Christ is clearly revealed as the one mediator between God and man, which means, among other things, that as we draw near to him in prayer, offering our far from perfect praises and petitions, Christ, in his exalted glory, makes them acceptable through his own perfect intercession on our behalf as our great high priest. Um, if you will consider Hebrews 7.25 and uh, Hebrews 4.14-16. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Hebrews 4.14-16 says, since then, 
We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <clears throat> now, given this, the role of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, we should consider that a lack of prayer communicates a lack of confidence in Christ or a lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit, a lack of recognition of our need for mercy and for grace. <clears throat> now, when we uh, consider prayer in the New Testament, of course, we have our Lord's supreme example in various contexts, in praise to the Father and in intercession for his people. But he also gave us a model in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And he gave this in response to the disciples' request that he teach them to pray. So let's uh, read that in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Matthew 6, 9 to 13, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, in considering this briefly, we see that this prayer requires first that we recognize our corporate covenantal relationship to God. It begins, our Father, not my Father. And this is important. In our corporate prayer, we are praying together as the people of God. Even if one person is leading, it is, <clears throat> it is corporate prayer presented together to our Father in heaven as we praise Him, as we confess to Him, as we seek His blessings in response to our petitions. When the congregation is listening to a corporate prayer, their agreement and affirmation of the prayer, the, the corporate confirmation, is expressed in the Amen at the conclusion. Now here at Faith, we have at least one brother who regularly gives his vocal affirmation uh, in an audible amen. And honestly, more of us probably should. I don't want to suggest that uh, you're not participating if you don't audibly say amen, but I do wonder sometimes if the reason some of us don't do so is because we don't adequately consider the corporate nature of prayer. It's not just me and my head and my heart before God, but it's me, it's each one of us among his people before God, praising him and praying to him. So just something to think about. So the Lord's Prayer is presented as a corporate prayer. And as a pattern, it teaches us that we pray together to our Father in heaven. The Lord's Prayer provides for our praising God's holy name as we recognize it as such. And thus, because we recognize it as such, we desire and ask that his name be hallowed by all. And then there are petitions in the prayer for the advancement and the ultimate consummation of his kingdom and the establishment of his righteousness on the earth. There's recognition of our humble dependence upon God for all things and petitions for our daily bread, for forgiveness of our trespasses, for guidance, for protection, for deliverance. This model teaches, this model prayer teaches us much about what corporate prayer 
should look like. <clears throat> but we learn as well from Jesus' own example in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. This prayer is a list of intercessions as well. Uh, Jesus prays here for the church uh, that his disciples are about to gather out of the world as they carry out their mission. He prays for the unity of the church, which will face problems and pressures from within and for the protection and continuity of the church, which will face persecution from without. He prays for the holiness of the church, that she would be sanctified. Jesus teaches us here that the prayers of his disciples should embrace a much broader concern than did the traditional nationalistic concerns of what was common in the Jewish synagogue of the day. In the Amida prayer that we talked about last week, um, which was the main prayer in the synagogue for centuries uh, by the time of the New Testament, but which had no prayer for the Gentile nations. In contrast, Jesus wanted his disciples to pray for the coming of his kingdom among all nations and the doing of his Father's will over all the earth as it is in heaven. And here we see Jesus as the great high priest fulfilling the role of intercessor as the one who is now the one mediator between God and man and as the covenant head of his people. So here he prays to the Father to keep his disciples from the evil one, to sanctify them in truth, and to make them one. Now, in the book of Acts, we see the faithful disciples gathered together for corporate prayer in the upper room. We see this in Acts 1.14. It says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So right from the beginning, even after Jesus' ascension, we see this devotion to corporate prayer. And then after the day of uh, Pentecost, in Acts 2.42, it tells us that the early church devoted itself, among other things, to the prayers, to the regular set prayers. We have another corporate prayer in Acts 4.24-30, which as we observed last week, draws on Psalm 2 for its theological basis. And then in Acts 12, verses 12 to 17, a corporate prayer meeting is held as the people plead for Peter's release from prison, which the Lord graciously answers. Corporate prayer and fasting also leads to the setting apart and the sending out of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Further, as we consider um, Paul's letters, Paul states regulations for the behavior of men and women in corporate prayer in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, and he asks the Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians to pray for his ministry. Among other things, corporate prayer should always be done in a manner that builds up the church as he teaches in 1 Corinthians 14, 16 to 17. He also instructs Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus, to lead the church in Ephesus to pray for all men, especially kings and those in high positions. And this is to be done without anger or quarreling. We see that in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, and verse 8. And uh, we had looked at this a bit last week as well. There is a lot more that could be said about prayer in the New Testament, especially from Paul, uh, but we'll address some of this later as we talk about the various kinds of prayer that we are to pray corporately. For now, I want to uh, move on to talk about corporate prayer in the history of the church. Now, when we get to the post-apostolic church, 
we have uh, actually some helpful documentation of prayer in the early church. The first epistle of Clement, which was written in Rome about the year 90 AD, concludes with a prayer that reflects the liturgical prayer of that church. It's a prayer of supplication and intercession, beginning and ending with praise and thanksgiving, which again is similar to the Amida that we talked about last week, and it's similar to some of the New Testament prayers. In the first paragraph of what's preserved of that prayer, um, to quote Hughes Old, quote, a solemn prayer of praise to the source of all creation, who in wisdom and justice governs the affairs of all men and nations, and who has chosen from out of the peoples of the earth a people to serve him. Then follows a list of intercessions for the afflicted, for the fallen, for the needy, for the sick, the wandering, prisoners, and for the salvation of all nations. And meditating on God's mercy and faithfulness to his people, the prayer asks for mercy to those who have sinned and peace for us and for all of the earth. The next paragraph of the prayer blesses God as sovereign ruler of the world and then intercedes for those to whom God has entrusted the government of this world. So this is an intercession uh, both for the civil authority as well as for the leaders of the church. The prayer ends with a doxology, praising God through Jesus Christ, the high priest and guardian of our souls. Okay, so again, this prayer is from the uh, late first century. Now from the second century, we learn from Justin Martyr that one of the major components of worship of the church on the Lord's Day was a prayer of intercession. And this not only for the spiritual growth of Christians, but for all people everywhere. This prayer of intercession was distinct from the prayer of thanksgiving, which was said at the communion service. So there were specified prayers for different purposes at different times in the service. The document called the Apostolic Constitutions from the 4th century provides us with a complete text of the liturgy of the Church of Antioch. <clears throat> and in this liturgy, we find a fully developed intercessory prayer. A prayer for the whole church throughout the world, the local church of Antioch, the ministry, the local bishop, presbyters, deacons, and other church leaders. There are prayers for married people, for the celibate, for women expecting children, for the sick, the exiled, and for those in prison. <clears throat> there are also prayers for enemies, for those who persecute the church, and for those who are outside the church. And then finally, there are prayers for those who are present and for the preservation in grace for every Christian soul. <clears throat> so it's a very full and uh, elaborate uh, intercessory prayer, but this type of full intercessory prayer, <clears throat> which was common for centuries, began to fade as the Middle Ages progressed. By the end of the Middle Ages, this great prayer of intercession, or the prayer of the faithful as it was called, had all but disappeared. Uh, there was no longer any general prayer of intercession in worship, and with the rise of monasticism, there developed an emphasis on mental prayer and on meditative prayer. <clears throat> now, with the coming of the Reformation, there was a radical reform in public prayer. Dr. Old says, The reformers gave themselves to an intensive study of the prayers of Holy Scripture to discover what the prayer that is according to scripture would be. But it did take some time for this new evangelical form of prayer to uh, take root. Martin Bucer of Strasbourg was instrumental in reforming 
the liturgy there in Strasbourg. He developed there two basic prayers, the prayer of confession and supplication and the prayer of intercession. The prayer of confession uh, became a comprehensive prayer of confession of sin and supplication for God's mercy, which closely followed the pattern that had been found at the temple. And we talked some about this last week again. That pattern with the four-part structure. First, the lamentation and confession of sin. Then the supplication for forgiveness. Then the assurance of pardon, which here was spoken by the minister. And then finally, a psalm of thanksgiving sung by the congregation. Again, this pattern, uh, that four fold pattern is found in many of the Psalms. Now the prayer of intercession there was developed into a comprehensive form by Bootser who wrote the liturgical texts and it became a long prayer that resembled the intercessory prayers of the patristic age, uh, praying for the civil authorities and the ministry of the gospel and the conversion of all peoples, a prayer for the perfection of the saints and a prayer for the afflicted. <clears throat> the wording and the framing of the prayers show the influence of texts such as 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8, Ephesians 6, 18 to 19, James 5, 13 to 18, and Philippians 1. My reference is not good because it says Philippians 1, 9 to 1. It's probably 9 to 10. Um, I, I suppose, maybe 11 or 12. <clears throat> Butcher's knowledge of patristic literature, uh, he had a great knowledge of patristic literature, and so he knew that the early church included these elements and concerns in their corporate prayers. Old says, Butcher's reform was based on scripture to be sure, but it was also informed by his knowledge of the practice of the early church. Now John Calvin followed Bootser's lead and translated these prayers into French, and so they became part of the Genevan liturgy through the Genevan Psalter of 1542, and through this influence they became a regular part of Reformed worship. Calvin spoke of a number of different genre of prayer, praise, invocation, confession, supplication, intercession, thanksgiving, and benediction. He also allowed for a variety of ways that public prayer could be exercised. In the Genevan Psalter, he provided set prayers, fixed written prayers, <clears throat> but he also encouraged spontaneous prayers um, in certain occasions. Calvin normally led the prayer of confession and supplication and the prayer of intercession pretty much by the book. Um, on the other hand, after preaching, he would normally pray extemporaneously. So there was uh, both a form prayer that was read and uh, but also free prayer. In the following century, the Puritans in England, the Huguenots in French, the Presbyterians in Scotland and the Calvinists in the Netherlands developed the idea of the various genre of prayer at considerable, considerable uh, depth. Um, this five-fold schema of praise, confession, petition, intercession, and thanksgiving, um, with certain additions or variations, was used in the 18th century mm -hmm. by Isaac Watts and Matthew Henry, who refined and elaborated this approach. Uh, generally speaking, the reformers were much more interested in the content of the service, in whether all of these biblical genre of prayer were included for the edification of the church, rather than their particular order, though there was some logical reason for the order. It would vary, though. Um, but they were more concerned that they were included in some form somewhere. Again, this is in line with the recognition that public prayer is the corporate activity and that it's aimed at the edification of the people of God. Public prayers 
deal with public concerns, um, not with personal and individual requests. And this is why corporate prayers utilize plural pronouns. We say, we pray, we ask, we praise, we thank, um, and we petition, forgive us, and bless us, and keep us, etc. Corporate prayer is actively, well, it's, it's actually uh, offered to two audiences at once. Um, it is prayed to God, but it is prayed in the presence of the congregation. And the congregation is participating in that prayer as we draw near to God together corporately. And so the congregation should be hearing and should be edified through the corporate prayer of the church. This is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 to 19, when he tells the church in Corinth not to pray in an unknown tongue, but to pray in a way that could be understood for the edification of all. The aim of edification meant that the use of scripture language and allusions in prayer is of critical importance. Now, it's um, been common in Reformed circles to speak of the elements of worship, specifically in terms of scripture. That is, we read the word and preach the word and sing the word, etc. And this is so in regard to prayer specifically. We pray the word. The Reformers understood, as we have seen, that corporate prayer should be deeply biblical and scripture-based. This understanding was common not only in early Protestantism, but in the whole subsequent Reformed and free church tradition. The words and the themes of Scripture were to shape the minds and the hearts of the people of God as they drew near to him in worship, including drawing near in prayer. These convictions are evident uh, in the liturgical reforms of Martin Bootser, of William Farrell, of John Calvin and John Knox, as they wrote scripture-based prayers in their orders of worship and encouraged free prayers. Again, free prayers meaning that they uh, were not fixed forms of prayer to be recited. In England, following the Act of Uniformity in 1662, when the Puritans were ejected from the Church of England, Anglicanism returned to a more fixed liturgical worship that consisted of fixed forms, including set prayers, without much room for variation or freedom or flexibility. But the dissenting churches continued in the Reformation principles that were established at Strasbourg and Geneva and other places. In subsequent generations in the Reformed tradition, Prayer has continued to be a deeply important part of the public ministry of the church. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, several books were deeply influential in informing and shaping the corporate prayer lives of Reformed churches. Among the most influential of those books were Matthew Henry's book, A Method for Prayer, which is in print by Banner of Truth, you can get that. Um, it's very good. Uh, just just saturated with scripture, um, which it turns into prayer for our edification in different forms from adoration and confession and thanksgiving and uh, other forms. Another one was Isaac Watts' book, A Guide to Prayer, which was published near the same time, just maybe a decade or so later. And then also a bit later than that was Samuel Miller's book, Thoughts on Public Prayer. And these were used and, uh, and really strong guides for the prayer of the church for quite some time. The importance of corporate prayer in the Reformed tradition is seen in the fact that it is considered another kind of pulpit speech closely related to preaching. For this reason, generations of old manuals of preaching often dealt thoroughly with the element of prayer. And many pastoral manuals deal with prayer and preaching together in the same section. In his book on preaching, The Art of Prophesying, 
The father of English Puritanism, William Perkins, described prayer as the second aspect of prophesying, prophesying being a term for preaching. Henry Ward Beecher, in his lectures on preaching, had a section of his work titled Prayer as an Element of Preaching. In addition to Perkins and, and Beecher, um, Doddridge and Dabney and Dale and Broadus and Jowett treated prayer similarly in their publications and in practice. And Fairbairn and Murphy, Shedd and Spurgeon all prioritized prayer right along with preaching. And all of these understood the central importance of scripture in informing and providing the language, the themes, and the shape of corporate prayer. I've got a number of quotes I'm going to read to illustrate this point. <clears throat> Matthew Henry says, I would advise that the sacred dialect be most used and made familiar to us and others in our dealing about sacred things. That language Christian people are most accustomed to, most affected with, and will most readily agree to. Patrick Fairburn urges that the whole prayer should be cast much in the mold of scripture and should be marked by a free use of its language. R.L. Dabney says, above all, should the minister enrich his prayers with the language of Scripture, explaining, besides its inimitable beauty and simplicity, it is hallowed and sweet to every pious heart by a thousand associations. It satisfies the taste of all. Its use effectually protects against improprieties. It was doubtless given by the Holy Spirit to be a model for our devotions let it then <clears throat> abound in our prayers. And Samuel Miller writes, one of the most essential excellencies in public prayer, and that which I feel constrained first of all and above all to recommend, is that it abound in the language of the word of God. A couple more here. Thomas Murphy says, the prayer of the sanctuary should be thoroughly saturated with scriptural thought and expression. The language of the Bible is that which the Spirit prompted and which must therefore be most in accordance with the mind of God. For the same reason, it must be Bible language which is best calculated to express those devotional feelings which are the work of the Spirit in the heart. <clears throat> And then John Broadus counsels, the minister should be consistently storing in his memory the more directly devotional expressions found everywhere in the Bible, and especially in the Psalms and prophets, the Gospels, epistles, and revelation. Most of us greatly need in our prayers a larger and more varied infusion of scripture language. <clears throat> So all of this emphasis on scripture-based prayer is consistent, not just with the Reformed tradition, but as we saw last week, with biblical practice as well. We saw, for example, how Exodus 34, verse 6 and following, was used in prayers and psalms in Israel's history. And there are many other examples of this in scripture. Uh, this is what God's people have done for millennia. Take God's word and use it in prayer. Terry Johnson concludes, a solid consensus on the nature and language and value of public prayer can be traced from the reformers to the beginning of the 20th century. But because of the decline since then, uh, this may seem strange to many today, but previous generations of Baptists and Presbyterians did not find this emphasis by these preachers and in these books remarkable because their worship with metrical psalms and scripture-based prayers, Bible reading, and biblical preaching was equally filled with the language of scripture. Because of the conviction that corporate prayer was to be deeply biblical, the Reformed 
tradition has emphasized the need for preparation for public prayer. It's a uh, common assumption among evangelicals today that sincere prayers are of of necessity extemporaneous. That is, they're out of the moment and out of the overflow of the heart in the moment. Uh, That to prepare for prayer, to have a prayer outline or even have a written prayer is somehow inauthentic or insincere. In rejecting formal and written prayers, Terry Johnson writes, Protestants have not paid sufficient attention to an orderly and symmetrical structure in public supplications. Extemporaneous prayer, like extemporaneous preaching, is too often the product of the single instant instead of devout reflection and meditation and premeditation. It might at first glance seem that premeditation and supplication are incongruous conceptions, that prayer must be a gush of feeling without distinct reflection. This is an error. No man, no creature can pray well without knowing what he is praying for and whom he is praying to. Everything in prayer, and especially in public prayer, ought to be well considered and well weighed. Mark Dever, in explaining why in their church they are deliberate in planning the prayers of the church, even writing them out, similarly reminds us of the many meaningless and repetitive extemporaneous prayers that no doubt we've all witnessed and experienced. He says, I have no reason to assume that a lack of thoughtfulness ahead of time in any way necessarily commends itself to God. And Dr. Old concurs, one has to admit that the spontaneous prayer one often hears in public worship is an embarrassment to the tradition. Again, a preacher from a previous century brings this thought. I deem that the minister is as much bound to prepare himself for praying in public as for preaching. In a more recent book, uh, Kent Hughes emphasizes the benefits of planned prayer. He says, uh, thought through public prayers will enrich and elevate public worship and the prayer life of the congregation. In fact, preparation often provides the ground for good extemporaneous prayers. And because of this, he recommends that pastors should embrace the discipline of writing out their prayers. And he cites Douglas Wilson in this regard, who says, when I finally began to write my prayers out before the service, I noticed something funny. I had stopped repeating myself. I found myself praying in new territory. In short, the previous situation had allowed me to pray predictable prayers that I had not really thought about. Composing prayers beforehand, sitting down and actually thinking through what I was going to say, brought in a whole new world of possibilities in prayer. Too many people, when they pray extemporaneously, pray in the same way that they comb their hair. It's a a habitual action that requires no thought. Now, uh, Samuel Miller, in his book, Thoughts on Public Prayer, notes how John Witherspoon of Princeton once inquired of the Reverend John Gillis, a Scottish preacher, how it was that his public prayers had such appropriate focus and expression and power. And in response, while he denied anything special in his prayers, Gillies did note that he had made it his aim for many years to improve that aspect of his ministerial work. He says, in the early part of my ministry, I abounded in devotional composition. Indeed, I must say that for the first 10 years of my pastoral life, I never wrote a sermon without writing a prayer in part or in whole corresponding with it in its general strain. This gave me the habit of expressing myself in prayer on all manner of subjects in appropriate, well-considered, and scriptural terms, and enabled me to embrace a variety in my public devotional exercises, which I should not have been likely otherwise to reach. 
in this practice of writing prayers, we see not fixed formula prayers as in a prayer book, but neither is it the loose type of extemporaneous prayer. It's considered prayer, it's composed prayer, it's shaped by scripture and designed to comport with the biblical and thematic content of the sermon and the worship service. This preparation requires considerable work and planning. Now, we earlier saw that the reformers developed what we referred to as the five-fold pattern of prayer. And I want to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at this, though um, we'll actually look at six basic prayers. Uh, Hughes Old calls this the full diet of prayer that ought to be ought to be uh, given in our worship services. <clears throat> now, um, of these six basic prayers, there may be some overlap in certain respects, uh, and certainly these can be combined in various prayers, uh, but we want to understand the distinction between these types of prayers. So if we have three or four or five different prayers in the worship service, we don't want them all to be covering the same ground and effectively saying the same thing. <clears throat> so what are these six prayers? You have them there in your notes. Um, one, invocation and prayer of praise. Two, confession and assurance of pardon. Three, thanksgiving. And then intercessions and petitions, which is a five-fold uh, list that we'll cover there. Then prayer of illumination and the benediction. <clears throat> so first, the invocation and prayer of praise. The invocation properly is a calling on the name of God. From the Latin it, uh, invocare, it means to call upon or to appeal to or to invoke. As in most of the Old Testament... In the Psalms, God is primarily invoked by the Tetragrammaton, the name that God revealed to Moses at Sinai. We see this, for example, in Psalms 7, verse 1. It says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. <clears throat> so there's this calling on God, invoking his name. And Jesus taught his disciples to invoke God as Father. While the scripture reveals a number of other names and titles by which we can call on God, it is his prerogative alone to reveal his name, and his name is to be hallowed. Psalm 105 verses 1 to 3 uh, is a good example of this. It says, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Hallowing his name is another aspect of the invocation uh, and includes in it the proclamation of God's divine attributes as, as in Exodus 34, 6. <clears throat> Jesus also taught us to pray in his name, to ask in his name, to gather in his name for worship. And he promised that we would be heard and answered when we come in his name. So the invocation is a calling on the Father whose name is hallowed and asking him to hear us in the name of the Son. Now there's much more that could be said about this, but this is the basic shape of it. It's calling upon the Father to bless us in the name of the Son. The invocation is often connected with a fuller prayer of praise, uh, and this is distinct from prayers of thanksgiving, um, though sometimes they can bleed together. But the focus here is on the attributes and on the works of God. One example is Jeremiah 32, verses 17 to 19, where the prophet says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth 
by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. We hear Exodus 34 again here. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. <clears throat> now this prayer of uh, praise can also include um, statements about our yearning for and our desire for God. And we see this sort of thing in Psalm 42 and in Psalm 63. In Psalm 73, verse 28, where the psalmist says, As for me, it is good to be near God. And Psalm 84, where he's longing for the courts of the Lord. <clears throat> Now, the next type of prayer uh, is a confession and assurance of pardon. And we see um, prayers to this effect uh, in, in Psalm 51, in Psalm 32, in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. Uh, we confess in this our weaknesses and unworthiness. We confess our failure to fulfill the two great commandments that Jesus has given, or how that we fall short of the Ten Commandments. We confess how we've departed from God's ways and how we've fallen short of His glory and how we've turned from His truth. We confess our self-righteousness and our hypocrisy, all the ways in which we've fallen short of the glory of God and failed to live in humble obedience to his word and by his spirit. And then we give thanks for what Christ has accomplished for us, that he died, the just for the unjust, that he came to seek and save the lost and to call sinners to repentance, to save his people from their sin. We give thanks that he bore our sins in his body on the tree that though he knew no sin, he was made to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank him that he gave his life as a ransom and that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So we give thanks for his work and then for all of the benefits that flow from this. We have been justified by faith and we have peace with God that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We thank him for the gracious promise that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So using the words of scripture like this in our prayer reminds us of God's own word to us. It instills that word in our hearts. It teaches us to think God's thoughts after him to meditate on his promises. And so our mind is renewed, our faith is strengthened, and our hope is grounded and our lives are transformed. Third, the uh, prayer of thanksgiving. In the prayer of thanksgiving, we express our thanks for both spiritual and material blessings. Uh, this could be, this prayer could be a separate prayer uh, in the service given before the offering which is an appropriate place as we thank God for all he's given us as we are about to return some portion of that to him. Or it could be uh, uh, part in conjunction with the, the Lord's Supper. Or it could be part of the pastoral prayer or one of the other prayers. Thanksgiving is appropriate with all kinds of prayers and petitions. Fourthly, intercessions and petitions. Uh, and here we'll talk about the fivefold petitions that the reformers gleaned from Scripture and from their study of the church fathers. And those are civil authorities, Christian ministries and missions, salvation of the lost, sanctification of the saints, and prayers for the afflicted. <clears throat> um, and all of this uh, can be summed up this way. Um, in these, we are claiming 
the promises of God and we are praying the commandments of God. <clears throat> With civil authorities, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, we've read it a couple times last week anyway. Uh, it says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. <clears throat> so there's much to pray for the civil authorities in that regard. That, that passage is, is full of suggestions about how we do that. Um, the next category, though, uh, Christian ministries and missions. We pray here for the church Catholic, that is, small c Catholic, uh, meaning the universal church. Um, we pray that the faithful ministry of the word will be carried out among God's people. We pray for the church to resist compromise and worldliness and to truly be the pillar and ground of the truth. We pray for the local church as well as the regional church and universal church. We pray for ministers' protection for their boldness and courage and for their faithful endurance as well as for the church's unity and peace and purity. Next, we pray for the salvation of the lost. Pray for all men of all ranks in all places for their salvation, that God would open hearts and bring fruit from the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of souls and for missions at home and in places far off where the gospel desperately needs to go. We pray in confidence about the advance of the gospel and the success of the Great Commission. Next, we pray for the sanctification of the saints. And this is one of the primary focuses of New Testament prayer. We see this especially in Paul. D.A. Carson uh, has a great book on this entitled Praying with Paul that demonstrates in prayer after prayer just how focused the apostle was in his prayers for the sanctification of the church. Just look at any of the prayers in his epistles and you'll see this. So we can glean much from Paul in this. <clears throat> in addition to this, we can pray positively for those virtues and character qualities in obedience to the text that we have also confessed that we've fallen short of. So again, we can pray according to the Ten Commandments or the Two Great Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the one and other passages of the Scriptures. So many texts which tell us how we are to live, we can pray that God would work in our lives to that end. And again, one of the great blessings of this is that we know we are praying what God has commanded. We're praying for what he loves and what he desires to work in us. And so we're bringing our hearts into conformity with his will and his words. And we're calling upon him to work out what he has laid upon our hearts and revealed in his word. And then fifthly, we pray for the afflicted. And this includes physical affliction, as well as mental and emotional and spiritual affliction with the discouraged, the depressed, the despondent. We pray for all matters that are troubling the people of God. A couple of references here, Psalm 130 <clears throat> and uh, James 5.14. The Bible is full of petitions and intercession and the patristics in the Reformed tradition have understood their importance. Again, Dr. Old says the restoration of the prayer of intercession to the ordinary service of the Lord's Day was one of the most valuable liturgical reforms of the 16th century. Now, just a little more to go here. Um, the fifth type of prayer now is the prayer of illumination. And this, like the others, arises out of our sense of dependence upon the Holy Spirit to work in our midst. 
understanding that apart from his work, we can't even understand the word of God as it is read and preached. This underscores the principle of sola gratia, that we are utterly dependent upon God's grace for all things. We see prayers to this effect, uh, particularly throughout Psalm 119. Ephesians 1 is another place where this is evident, where we pray for him to enlighten the eyes of our hearts and give us understanding. And then sixthly, the benediction. Uh, This is also one of those elements restored from patristic practice. The most commonly used benedictions uh, were the ironic blessing of Numbers 6 and the apostolic benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. So these are the six types of prayer that the reformers sought to restore. But again, it's uh, not necessary to pray six separate prayers in each service touching on these. Um, Some of these can be combined sometimes in a pastoral prayer. Some of these elements are sometimes combined in the opening prayer of invocation and praise, even at times in the prayer of illumination. But there are important benefits in distinguishing these in some form in the order of service. Uh, But even more importantly, that they are present in some form in the regular service of worship. This benefits the congregation in many ways. It teaches them and brings them into the experience of prayerful praise and adoration of God for who he is in his triune nature and holy attributes. It brings them into heart felt confession of sin and expressions of sorrow and penitence, as well as of comfort with words of assurance of pardon from Scripture. It brings to the people of God a deeper recognition of our deep dependence upon God, even to hear, to understand, to believe, and to be transformed by the word as it is read and preached. It helps the whole church to enter into the pleas and petitions for our sanctification, our longing for Christ-likeness in our lives, for the unity, peace, purity, and good of the church in her ministry, for the gospel to spread powerfully, for the people of God to be protected from the opponents of truth, the enemies of God, for perseverance, particularly for those who suffer for the gospel, but for all who endure hardship and suffer affliction. The church will enter together into expressions of thanksgiving and joy for the good gifts of God to us in this life, and most particularly in Christ, in whom we have been given every spiritual blessing. In short, praying scriptural prayers like this, in this variety, the church will be brought corporately to draw near to God, to worship him with reverence and awe. This is the goal, this is the hope, and God willing, this will be what we'll see in increasing measure as we pray together as God's people gathered in corporate worship. As in all areas of sanctification individually, the church's growth in reformation and maturity corporately is a progressive process. Uh, These are things that will always need improvement. Uh, But Lord willing, we'll be able to grow together in this area, even as we pray that we may grow together in all areas of our lives. Now, that's what I have for today. So let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Our gracious God, what a privilege it is ours to be able to approach you in prayer to come before your holy presence as men and women who in ourselves are weak, sinful, much in need of mercy and grace. Father, how thankful we are that we are given the mercy, the grace that we need in Christ and that he has opened the way for us to come confidently, to come boldly before you and present our requests because we come in his name who is worthy. Lord, we pray that you would 
work among us this day as we gather with your people, that your spirit would work to transform each of us, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know you better. For that is what you've made us for and redeemed us for. Work to that end among us today. In Christ's name, amen.